Fear Itself is sponsored by Oto, the premium CBD brand ranging from drinks to skincare. One of my favorite products by Oto is their CBD Pillow Mist. A world first, it combines 30% CBD with Ayurvedic botanicals such as lavender and chamomile that are designed to aid sleep. CBD creates balance within the body which can help make it easier to drift off at night and also to stay asleep. And unlike a sleeping tablet, CBD does not make you feel drowsy. Falling asleep is something I've always really struggled with, having thoughts that go a million miles an hour around my head. The CBD pillow mist makes me feel a lot calmer and relaxed, ultimately giving me a better night's sleep. In Oto's extensive consumer trials, over 87% of users reported an improvement in sleep quality, with 92% also benefiting from improved mood, energy and concentration the next day. You can find these products and more at otocbd.com. Oto, find your space. My name's Elizabeth Day and my fear is of alienation. Welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with people about their personal stories around fear. In my experience, fear can be motivational, but it can also really hold me back, and I'm curious to understand this dynamic a bit better. How does fear show up? How do people try to hide it? How can we harness it? And what can we learn from it? My guest this week is Elizabeth Day, the award-winning author, journalist and broadcaster. Her latest book, How to Fail, Everything I've Ever Learned from Things Going Wrong, is part memoir, part manifesto and grew out of her hugely successful podcast of the same name. This chart-topping podcast is a celebration of the things that haven't gone right. Her guests have included the likes of Phoebe Wallerbridge, Nigel Slater and Dame Kelly Holmes. This subject of failure may come as a surprise to some, as Elizabeth has had huge success with her novels and her career in journalism. Elizabeth is one of the warmest people I have ever met, hugely inspiring and, as I like to call her, the wisest owl in the forest. This episode was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak, but the themes discussed around alienation seem more relevant now than ever. I wanted to talk to Elizabeth about human connection, the power of community, alienation in relationships, and what triggers her fear. Please listen out at the end for a quick chat I had with Elizabeth on the phone yesterday to get her perspective on the current situation we are now in. I began by asking her about why she thinks her podcast has resonated with so many people. It is an irony that actually, when I started talking about failure, that was the impetus for the biggest professional success I've ever had. So yeah. I'm aware of the absurdity. But I do think when I talk about failure, it is because I think that there's something that lies beneath the surface of what seems to be effortless success. And um, I really wanted to scratch the surface of that. And that's why I'm super interested in this podcast yes. idea. And you talk to people on your podcast about the importance of their failures on their road to success. And do you think fear plays a role in our failures? Hugely. I think a lot of people are scared of failure itself. And that means that they don't take risks because they don't want to take a leap into the unknown in case they are judged for it. And my point is simply who's doing the judging? If you think it's other people, you can't ever live your life fully if you're constantly living it in fear of what other people might think, because that's about their baggage and not yours. And then mm. 
you run the risk of outsourcing your sense of self and never living your life, but their version of your life. Mm. And I also think that you run the risk then of not experiencing life at its fullest texture, because actually life is a combination of happiness and sadness and black and white and grey areas. And it's a combination of failure and success. And you can't fully appreciate one without the other. Mm. I mean, fear definitely in my life is something that stops me in my tracks. And as you said, stops me from even trying. So then, you know, the failure can't even exist because we're so scared of the failure in the first place. But I also just want to talk about this this word fearless, which I do feel like is kind of banded around. Um, it's something that I don't believe in. I think we all have fears. It's just the way we we handle them and how we approach and face them. And what would you say about this word fearless? It's really interesting that because I'd never thought about it until we had a conversation. You and I had a conversation about this podcast. And I think you're absolutely right that actually fearless, just the word itself, I don't think we should approach life trying to be less about anything. Mm. (laughs) I think we should seek to experience it to the hilt. And being fearless because it's such an absolute can feel very overwhelming. So if someone is constantly being encouraged to be fearless and also feel scared, then they feel already like they're failing. Mm. And so a lot of what I talk about is about where we get that internal and external messaging from. And from my perspective, I realise that failure is when something doesn't go according to plan. So then I have to ask myself, who set the parameters of the plan? And often it's me and I'm only failing my own expectation. And that's ridiculous. So I think that the idea of fearlessness can actually put some people off in the same way that the idea of absolute failure puts people off. And actually, we need to be a lot more encompassing of the grey areas and the nuance of life and the fact that there are shades of grey in everything that we do. Mm-mm. And you, you you write in your book, How to Fail, that real strength comes from owning your vulnerability and expressing your emotions in a way that is true and calm and powerful. And I think there is this kind of misconception that being vulnerable or saying, oh, I'm afraid or I'm, or I failed is weak. And that Mm. I really struggle with that because I completely disagree. I actually think it's very, very brave. I completely agree with you. It is courageous to be able to share your vulnerabilities. And again, with failure and with fear, I think historically there's been an enormous amount of taboo and shame around admitting either. And actually the only way to tackle shame is to bring it out into the open. Mm. <laughs> that That's the way to denude it of its power. And I found through doing the podcast and writing the book that actually it is paradoxically when we are most open about our vulnerabilities, that we are able to seek and forge the greatest connection with other people. And that for me is the true source of strength. Yes. And actually the, 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 I mean, I've listened to most of your podcast episodes, massive fan over here, as you know. Um, but actually the ones that really I connect with are the people that are the most open. Um, the episode that has stayed with me of yours in How to Fail is the one with Mo Gaudat, who tragically lost his son, who is a, um, 
used to be a Google engineer, but now is a uh, has set up a algorithm for happiness. Yes, that's actually my favourite episode of all time. I know you're not meant to have favourites, but Mo lost his beloved son Ali tragically when Ali was 21 and underwent a routine operation. And in the aftermath of Ali's death, Mo was obviously polaxed by grief. And he did something really extraordinary, which formed the foundation for the interview that I did with him, which is he developed an algorithm for happiness. And it's to do with the fact that you need to treat the, if the events in your life are less than or equal to your expectation of them, then you can be happy. So it's about managing your expectation, essentially. And he said that in the aftermath of Ali's grief, this equation was put to the ultimate test. And for many weeks, he was struggling with terrible trauma and grief. And he would wake up in tears thinking, Ali died, Ali died. That was his first thought every morning. And then after a while, he decided to think that thought, but in a different way. And so he said to himself, yes, Ali died, but he also lived. Mm. And it was the same fact, but it was differently expressed. And that is something that I talk about a lot and profoundly affected me as a listener, as well as the interview. It really did change my life because I think that failure and fear are facts of life. They will happen to all of us at some point. And actually we can choose how we respond to it. We're in charge of the emotion that we attach to those facts. So Elizabeth, coming on to your fear, the fear of being alienated, can you um, just expand on this? Because I was interested how you you used that word and not, uh, you know, isolated or Mm. loneliness. You used alienated. I was careful about the word because first of all, I thought I'm I'm fearful of being lonely. But then I was like, no, that's not it. Because I classify myself as an introvert who's learnt comparatively successfully to appear extroverted when necessary. (laughs) But ultimately, actually where I replenish my energy is when I'm on my own and I really value that time. And I sometimes think of myself on a desert island and whether I'd be happy there. And I think I would be okay. I would miss the people that I love, but I know that I could survive in that context, if I were allowed to write, then I wouldn't feel lonely. So I dismiss the idea of loneliness. What it is The fear that came to me was the idea of being elderly, the people I loved having died Mm. and no longer being seen to be of use to society. So being overlooked by people because I would be an old woman. And by the way, I think the way that society treats older people is really shocking. Um, And there's a lot of work to be done there. And that fear of then being unable to connect or to make new friends because no one would want to bother themselves. Mm. It was that idea of like having lost my power almost to communicate and connect. That's what I'm most fearful of. And I realized, yes, there's an element of loneliness there, but actually it's deeper for me. It's about alienation and the inability to connect because actually everything that I do in my life is about the value of connection and of being understood. So in the books that I write, I'm seeking to understand my characters if I'm writing novels, or I'm seeking to understand myself if I'm writing nonfiction. And I'm seeking also to make other people feel less alone by seeing themselves reflected in the page. And in my podcasts, similarly, I want people to feel less ashamed and less fearful and therefore have that 
connection. And that's what makes my life worth living. So to be excluded from that would be horrible. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of these these fears actually do come back to the actual root of it is the fear of being alienated or on our own. Yeah. I mean, the thing about humans is that we are social creatures. So our survival depends on us forging community. Mm. And I always remember I'm a I'm a big advocate of therapy <laughs> and my last therapist the first thing she said to me in our first session was I think you care too much what other people think of you and my challenge as a therapist is going to be never revealing what I think of you and she was absolutely right and actually that was quite terrifying because I am used and have developed a way of I guess charming people that I feel threatened by <laughs> and and that's because I wasn't very happy at school a lot of the time. And I think I was trying desperately to fit in and thereby win people over and thereby get greater protection by being in a group. And I never really was. In my first secondary school, I was, I just didn't fit in. I was never one of the popular crowd. I think that's the root of it for me is mm -hmm. that I want to feel safe. And actually one of the greatest lessons that I've learned through the podcast and How to Fail book is that thing that we were touching on earlier about forging strength through vulnerability. It's that actually when I am most honest about myself, as I really am, like the true authentic self, rather than the self I was pretending to be all through my 20s and like early 30s, and then kidding myself that I wasn't pretending and that it was actually me. The true authentic me with the fallibilities and the fears, actually that seems to have had the greater connection to more people. And mm. that's been a really good lesson for me. And now I understand that my responsibility in a situation is to bring my true self to that situation if I feel safe in it. And how someone responds is almost entirely then to do with their emotional baggage and what they bring to it. Mm. And, and so although that's very difficult, that's what I try and remind myself. So the person that you were trying to be in your 20s compared to the person that you are now, what is that difference? Um, the person in my 20s, I was much more of an inveterate people pleaser. And it's a term that gets bandied around a lot. But when I say I was a people pleaser, it was actually quite, it actually makes me feel slightly sick now to think back. I said yes to everything and everyone, even if I didn't want to do it, even if it wasn't who I was. And the most toxic way that that made itself felt was in romantic relationships because I ended up being a kind of caregiver to my boyfriend, at the, whatever boyfriend it was. And I was in a series of long-term monogamous relationships because I took my people pleasing so seriously that basically as soon as I kissed someone, like that was it. We were locked in for yeah. these two years. <laughs> and um, I would do all the grocery shopping and I, I would also have a job and I'd kind of be the earner. It was just really unbalanced. And it wasn't the fault of my lovely boyfriends at all. It was entirely my fault, but it just got to the stage where I remember vividly being asked things like, where do you want to go for lunch at the weekend? And I wouldn't know the answer. I would always say, I don't know, where do you want to go? Because I would always want to please that person. And I was fearful of 
making them in some way disapprove of me by saying the wrong thing. I mean, mm. when it gets to that stage, you really have to take a long, hard look at yourself. And similarly at work, I said yes to all of the assignments that other people didn't want. I worked incredibly hard. I did overtime. I never once asked for a pay rise. My my career did not progress one iota because I wasn't claiming the space. I was just so pathetically grateful to be there. And I was saying yes constantly, even though I didn't want to do the things I was being asked to do. So that's the main difference is that I have learned the value of boundaries. And I always used to think that boundaries were selfish. And I now realize they're selfless because they enable you to preserve your compassionate energies for the things that really matter and that are true to you. Mm. So that's the main difference. But that it's cost me a lot. I mean, I went through a divorce (laughs) to get here, um, which is not something I would recommend. Like if you can do the work on yourself before that point, that would be great. But for me, it really required hitting that level of emotional wall. And you do talk about in your book, in your marriage, you were feeling alienated. Yeah, that's a, a very astute point. I felt very, very alone at points in that particular relationship. And it was partly because I was going through IVF. That was really the catalyst for the end. Um, I had two cycles of IVF back to back in 2014 and then they didn't work. And then a few months later, I got pregnant naturally and I then had a miscarriage at three months. And that all happened over the course of a year. And however loving or otherwise your partner is, that is something that is happening to you as a woman that's incredibly difficult to explain to anyone, including yourself. And I didn't really process what was happening to me. And it's very difficult to explain to anyone who hasn't gone through it exactly what it's like, partly because you're so overridden by hormones. And um, it took me a very long time to realise, looking back, that I did feel numbed and isolated. And I think I would categorize that now as a mild depression. Mm. And it was my best friend, Emma, who said to me at one point, it's like I'm knocking on glass and you're behind this glass screen and I can't get through to you. And that was really a, a momentous moment for me because for her to say that, I knew then that there was something seriously awry. And you're absolutely right that I felt alienated in my marriage, but also alienated from myself and my true self, because I'd spent all of this time trying to create another person within me and it hadn't worked. And I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted or what I was for. And I know that that sounds quite brutal, but I think we're still taught as women wrongly that our biological imperative is to have children. And therefore, if you're failing to do that, what's your worth? Mm. Now, I've done a a lot of research into that and I've written a lot about it and I no longer believe that that is the case. And I sincerely hope that I'm part of a new generation that is attacking those social norms because a woman is so much more than her ovaries. Mm. But at the time, that's how I felt. And there was a moment, wasn't there, that you also write in your book of you were in a restaurant having brunch and you went to the bathroom and you miscarried in the yeah. in the bathroom because you didn't want to upset or you didn't want to um shake the moment of the of the brunch absolutely it was my friend haley was over from australia and we'd arranged to meet for this brunch and i she was over from australia like i really wanted to see her 
I didn't want to let her down. I didn't want to cause a fuss or a scene. And that's when I realised that my people pleasing tendencies had really gone too far. Mm. It was, and and Haley was wonderful and took me to the hospital. And of course, she was immediately kind of there for me in a way that if I'd been able to vocalise what I needed, she would have been as well. It was just, it was so odd, that whole experience. And yeah, I started to miscarry in that restaurant toilet and then um, got admitted into hospital and had a very tough weekend in hospital. Yeah, But yeah, that miscarriage... I talk to my friends about it. And part of the reason I'm passionate about talking about this is absolutely to destigmatize it because I had no idea what IVF entailed before I did it. And I certainly had no idea of what miscarriages were until I experienced them. And very few people do. And it's partly because female experience generally has been marginalized. But female experience, when it comes to their biology and their medical pathology definitely has been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's partly why I talk openly about it. And one of the people I spoke openly to about it is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who um, then used that in the second season of Fleabag. There is an opening scene yes. where Fleabag's sister starts miscarrying in a restaurant toilet. And I was, she asked me whether she could use it. And I was really honoured that she did because Fleabag season two, as far as I'm concerned, as a televisual masterpiece. And therefore, to have something that important in the opening episode is actually just one of the greatest legacies Mm. of that particular episode in my life, I could imagine. Yeah. And also, I'm not at that stage yet of having children, but I do know that it is something that people don't talk about. Mm. And I kind of find that fascinating because I think oh, if only we could somehow we'll talk, talk about it because then actually people surely then would actually feel less alienated. I know I keep bringing up that word again, but if you like. Yes, exactly. And I actually, one of my greatest fears was miscarrying again. And I haven't spoken about this because I'm still processing it. But before Christmas 2019, I was unexpectedly pregnant and I did miscarry again. And it was really shattering. But one of the things that came out of that was my realisation that I could survive it. And it made me feel really strong afterwards. And I think when you face your fears, you're forced to face them and you're forced to confront them. You do grow phenomenally as a result of that. And I'm always surprised by the resilience that humans have Mm. innately. So in a way, this process has been really interesting for me because talking about alienation, like I don't think I was ever fully in tune with my own body, whereas now I'm so much more in tune with it and I'm so much more connected with myself and like what I can do and my ability to heal that it actually makes me feel really empowered. So Mm. in a way, I've kind of de-alienated myself (laughs) from myself. Yeah. And the fear, do you think, I mean, a lot of your writing comes back to the family dynamic and that sort of, that really strong, that has a real presence in your writing. Mm. And do you think, I mean, I know we're going back to school, but school and family had a real part to play in this, this fear of yours? Definitely, because I was born in England. And when I was four, my father, who's a surgeon, got a job in Northern Ireland. So we moved just outside Derry in 1982. And if you have watched Dairy Girls, as I have religiously, because it's brilliant, um, you will know a bit about what it was like then, which was uh, bombs going off, military checkpoints, and 
often to speak with an English accent was to mark you out as a military occupier. So it wasn't great to speak with my voice. But for some reason, I never picked up the accent. And when I was reflecting on that in the book, I think it was partly because the North of Ireland is a place where a lot of the most important things are left unsaid. And it feels as if you're often being lied to by people in power. And I think I therefore grabbed hold of the one thing that I knew was truly me and truly honest about me. And that was my voice and my accent. And so I never picked up a Northern Irish accent. And when I went to secondary school, as I've mentioned, that became more difficult. And I definitely didn't fit in. And I never fitted in in Ireland. And that was hard for me because it was my home. It was the only home I'd ever known. And I got a scholarship in the end to a boarding school in England. And as soon as I got to that school, it was much easier for me because everyone assumed that I'd had the same upbringing as them because I sounded right. And actually, (laughs) I had no clue what the rules were. I had no idea about that kind of very privileged background. But it was easier to assimilate. But in both contexts, I was put into the role of the observer. So someone who was kind of always slightly on the sideline looking at what was going on rather than being enmeshed in it. Now, that's an instance where my alienation, I think, turned into a force for good because I think that observational capacity is what made me into a writer mm. and it, and an interviewer. And therefore, I'm incredibly grateful for it because it's led me to what I now do. And yeah. I'm really passionate about that. And I hope that also it gave me a degree of empathy for other people and understanding what other people might be going through. So... It's a very formative time mm. for me, definitely. Because I, I was going to come on to that actually, is is this the job and you being a journalist? It is quite an insular. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a journalist, but it seems like quite an insular career. Yeah, writing. It's funny. So, so I'm trying. I'm just going back. So basically, until two years ago, I made my living as a jobbing journalist. So that was being a news reporter, being a feature writer, an interviewer. Um, Latterly, I was freelance. And those things are not as insular as my life is now because you're being forced as much as you might not want to, to meet people all the time. Mm. And I was definitely interacting with people and it was very good practice for me, actually, as someone who is pretty introverted, naturally to be forced to go up and like talk to people at parties because that was part of my job was a good learning exercise. And now I'm glad I've done that, but I'm also so grateful for the working life I have because writing a column, as you rightly identify, that is just me and my thoughts and the page. But I find that really liberating and exciting. And And actually it's not alienating because I always know that I'm writing for readers and when I post the column every Sunday when it comes out, there are always comments and there's like Mm. interaction and people who get in touch. And that's really wonderful because I don't think I'm someone, I think I would always write. I always need to write to make myself feel untangled, but I'm also someone who's always wanted to be published. So I've always wanted to have that interaction. So maybe I'm not as introverted as I thought because I actually really like feedback yeah I mean I when I first met you I in the first you know five minutes wanted to tell you my darkest secrets and I think that's why on the podcast is people do feel 
very willing to be open and vulnerable is because you have this huge amount of empathy. And I think some sometimes when I've been interviewed by journalists, not saying that they don't have any empathy, mm. but I feel not as willing to tell them things because it doesn't... I you don't, don't feel safe. Yes. And mm. I think that's what you do is you make people ve feel very safe. And when we met, that's immediately, I was like, well, I could just tell you anything. And Thank you. Well, ditto. And I think that's um, a real gift. And, and yes, why I, I assume you love writing and doing what you, what you do. I do. And I'm at the very fortunate point in my career now that I can actually write what I think and what the truth is. Mm. And I've worked hard to get there. But being able to write who I truly am and what I truly think about something is is really wonderful. I think part of the reason I hopefully make someone feel safe and I hopefully am able to honour their stories is because I'm sincere and I I am. <laughs> That's just a thing. Mm, yeah. I'm not actually, I, I, and I'm lucky that I'm now in the situation where I don't really have to put on a front. And so what you see in the person you meet and the person you read about on the page, they're all absolutely the same person. I think that's why I felt really liberated doing what I've been doing. Mm. And that's why I'm so scared of it going away and my not having that connection with other people, my not having the connection with myself and being unable to communicate and disappearing behind that glass screen again. Yes. That's what I'm scared of, Cressida. <laughs> You've got it out of me. I'm bearing my soul. I just can't imagine that happening, Elizabeth. But you are authentic. And I think everyone really wants to be their authentic selves. Yeah. And I think people do really want to express themselves truthfully, which I know actually in your book, you said at a time you found very difficult to do, which now knowing you, I find that really surprising because you're very good at that. But it's like, how do we get there? Because do you think everyone wants to connect and wants to Definitely. be that, but struggle? Yeah. And actually probably one of my biggest fears was being my authentic self and that not being good enough or people not liking me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not like, not liking you for who you really are. Exactly. So I can only speak from my personal experience, which is that the opposite has been true in the same way that when I started saying no to things, I worried that I would then never be asked again. But actually what happens when you start saying no, definitely to work assignments is that loads of people want you suddenly because mm. you seem like this enigmatic quantity. And in the same way, counterintuitively, I've just found that when you're being your authentic self, the connections you forge are in and of themselves stronger because someone is relating to you as you really are. And my experience has been the opposite, that I felt much more embraced and loved for who I really am. And how to get there. For me, it was about releasing myself from toxic situations, relationships, and from a toxic sense of my own expectation of myself. So I used to be someone with a five-year plan and I used to be someone with very clear goals about where I was going to be. And now I just realise that that doesn't work for me because it sets me up for failure because then I get to that five-year point and I haven't done all of those things and I haven't run a marathon and I haven't learned to play the flute and I haven't learned how to speak fluent Italian and therefore I consider myself a failure. But that's just rubbish. That's just my own plan that I've set so I can just remove that pressure. And then it was also about recognizing that sometimes you're in relationships that have been in your life for a very, very long time, but they're not good for you because they don't allow you to grow or evolve. Mm. Because the links that you have that I would categorize as toxic are the ones where 
the other person involved needs you to be a certain way. They need you, for instance, to be unhappy in your relationship because it makes them feel better about the fact that they're unhappy in theirs. And if you choose to end something and move and grow and grow into a space where you are more content with life and they don't, they don't like that. And that can be really upsetting to realise. So I think the best relationships and friendships in life are able to have that capacity to evolve side by side. And in order to get to your authentic self, you need to stop trying to please those people and you need to identify them. And sometimes it can be as easy as saying, how do they make me feel? Do they drain me of energy or do they radiate energy? Are they drainers or radiators? If they drain you of energy, it might be nothing to, it might not be their fault at all. It might just be like a chemistry thing, but you need to be more careful about the time and the energy that you give to that particular person. Mm -mm. I've had an experience over the last few years where um, a couple of female friends who I thought were lifelong friends turned out not to be. And that was enormously sad and painful And I'm not quite sure what happened. (laughs) But I've also got to accept as someone who accepts evolution and growth that people are allowed to evolve and grow away from me. And Mm. that's okay. And it doesn't mean that it's forever because friendships go through phases. And it's just that as a culture, I don't think that we have learned how to navigate friendships in the same way as we've learned, in the same way that there's a sort of informal rule book for breaking up romantic relationships. There isn't the same thing for friendships. Mm. And I think it's because they've been marginalised for ages as a source of love. And actually the greatest love affair of my life is arguably with my friends. It's certainly the most consistent one. And I think there's a lot more airplay now given to female friendships. And I'm so joyful for that. But I do think maybe we need to just develop more codes of (laughs) behaviour. But I also think the friendship thing, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, is interesting because having felt that a couple of friendships have fallen by the wayside, that's what's triggered my deep fear of alienation. Because I sort of think, oh, well, these were people that I thought were going to be ride or die buddies for life. And it hasn't seems not to have turned out that way. And I don't know if it's that I've done something wrong or I don't know if it's that another person is always fundamentally unknowable. And I suppose that scares me as well. Yeah. That thing that you can never, as much as you know someone and as much time as you spend with them and as much as you love them, they are capable of shocking you to your core with their behavior. And that's happened to me a number of times in my life. And I'm just, that's another big fear. Yeah, of, of someone treating you like that again. Yes. I mean, for instance, like ends of relationships when you're not in control of it, when you're the one being broken up with, would be a prime example of that. It can sometimes be so shocking that this person you have been in love with, who you've spent your life with for however many months or years, has turned around and turned into someone that you never thought that they would be. Mm -hmm. And they've revealed themselves as they really are. And that can be quite shocking a lot of the time yeah 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 which I guess so many people can relate to that there's um relationships where it does end like that and actually you know in my experience when you're in a relationship and your best friend you feel like you're best friends with the person and I've had very long relationships and then suddenly it's over for sort of you know it's horrifying so quickly and then you think 
God, that really feels very unnatural. Yeah, it is a form of grief because it depends how you handle a breakup. But I've always been someone who I'm able to acknowledge the fact of a breakup and I would still like to have a bit of contact with that person who's been important in my life. But a lot of people don't see it as that and cut off contact straight away. And that's a very, very hard thing to get used to because you suddenly question whether you had any importance in their life whatsoever. Mm. For someone to be capable of doing that just, for me, seems so callous. Yeah. And I now, now that I'm talking about it, realise that that is also because I had a boyfriend at university and for the year after university who uh, I think was my first real, real love. And we broke up. I broke up with him And six months after we broke up, he flew to Iraq as a freelance journalist and he was killed. And it was an absolute tragedy. And I think of him all of the time. His name was Rich Wilde. And it was a brutal lesson in the fact that you sometimes don't get another chance. Mm. And that therefore for me, subsequent to that, it's always been disproportionately important perhaps to stay in touch with the people that I've loved who be meaningful to me. Mm. And there's actually a quote in your book, courage is not a quality you are born with or without, like the ability to roll your tongue. You can learn it and you can practice it. And the more you use it, the easier it becomes to think of it as an automatic reflex the next time a dilemma presents itself, which I so loved and underlined. <laughs> and I sort of want to end on that. And I kind of wanted you to, to elaborate on it as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I can't roll my tongue. So that's <laughs> another failure. Um, but I think it's that idea that all of us are really familiar with the idea of going to the gym in order to build up our muscles and to make ourselves healthier. But we're less familiar with the idea that you can build up emotional resilience in exactly the same way. And that it is a simple question of experiencing it and doing the thing. And then it becomes just much more of a natural inclination to respond that way the next time. So the more that you experience fear or failure, not that you should go out and actively pursue it. I'm absolutely not saying that, but we'll all confront it. I will in the next year, let alone week. If we can see those things as opportunities for growth and opportunities to build up resilience, then actually they're going to be wonderful teachers of things that we need to know. Gosh, Elizabeth, now I would like to come on to your (laughs) irrational fear, which you said was pigeons. Change of pace, yeah. And, um, yeah, great change of pace. And the showing of the inside of your wrists, which is the one I want to talk about. Yes, that makes sound really freaky. First of all, I wouldn't mind being alienated from pigeons forever. A flock Great. of me, a flock of them flew at me as I was on my way to record this podcast. It was as if they knew. And I just always think that they're going to fly into my eyes. Anyway, the wrists thing is so weird. So yes, I don't like it when people touch the insides of my wrists. It feels like an extremely vulnerable physical spot for me. It makes me feel faint when people do it. And I don't know why it is, whether it's because there are veins there and even now talking about it I feel slightly faint do you know what I get it I I don't have that but I get it because I think it's just looking at my wrists now they're very ugly and veiny and 
quite gross. Yeah, they're not, but they are. Um, very, yes, vein. It's the, ve- it's it's the, the veins. veins. It's the fact that there's so much blood there. <laughs> And I wonder, I mean, there's part of my sort of woo-woo self that is like, well, maybe in a past life, you know, I slipped my own wrist just to go really dark um, or something happened that it just feels like something's happened there that I don't want anyone to touch. Or, But I know yeah. that I'm not alone. I know that there. I've met a couple of other people who have the same thing. But the strange thing about that fear is that I have three tattoos and the first tattoo I ever got was on the inside of my right wrist. Now, I don't know, that felt totally fine. I think it's when someone puts their finger or like holds the wrist, Mm. but with a tattoo needle, it was completely fine. That's interesting (laughs) because I'd hate to have a tattoo on the inside of my wrist. It was so odd. I don't know. But it's it's not there. It is. It's white ink. You can barely see see it. It was like my gateway tattoo. I I was in a very odd headspace then because that was the reason I got it was because it was just after the two cycles of IVF had been unsuccessful. And I want, it's a circle, a white ink circle. And it's a reminder that life goes on. And I think I was so emotionally numb that I almost didn't feel like physical pain either. And so, yeah, it's there. Don't think I'd have another one though. I definitely (laughs) wouldn't on the left wrist. (laughs) And Elizabeth, what is, I love saying your name, Elizabeth Day. It's got a real ring to it. Uh, What is the place that you go to when you feel, feeling fearful, have fearful thoughts that could be a physical place or somewhere in your imagination? Um, I breathe. That's the first thing that I always remind myself to do because fear has an immediate physical impact on most of us, I imagine. And one of those is shallowness of breath. So I breathe and then where do I feel safest? Actually, I can answer this completely accurately because one of my other fears is um, turbulence in airplanes. Oh, me yeah. Too. yeah. And it got worse as I got older and I had hypnotherapy for it. And the person who gave me hypnotherapy asked me to visualize a safe place that I felt like happy and confident and it was at the top of Mount Hollywood in LA um Mount Hollywood is at the top of an incredible hiking trail way past Griffith Park observatory and it is so beautiful up there partly because you feel on top of the world and it's so expansive and the horizon is vast and the air feels fresh and you feel a sense of achievement and physical self um so that's actually the place that I imagine Nice. Sounds, I was imagining it in my head as you were saying it. It sounds beautiful. Uh, and the music that you listen to? Um, I love 90s hip hop and there is nothing <laughs> I better. I really didn't think you were going to say <laughs> I know. that. It's quite unexpected. <laughs> there is nothing better to get you out of a fearful or tense mindset than listening to any of Dr. Dre's seminal 2001 album or House of Pain, Jump Around, or Buster Rhymes and Q-Tip, Thank You, which reminds you to be grateful as well. Yes. Oh, Elizabeth, thank you so much. And what are you doing now? I feel like you're writing another book. I am. I'm actually okay. I'm actually writing two books, so well done me. <laughs> Just make myself very busy. Um, I'm writing a spin-off on failure, actually, called Philosophy, and I'm also writing a new novel. So, oh, fantastic. Which I'm loving. So those two things are next. And obviously the podcast is continuing yeah. and um, I feel so passionate about it. And yeah, I can't imagine that ever stopping. So I'll do that as long mm-hmm. as I can. Can you say what the novel's called? Yes, I've not been asked that yet. Oh. The novel's, at the moment it's called Magpie. Okay. That might change according to what my editor thinks. <laughs> 
Elizabeth, thank you so much. You really are a wonder. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, well, right back at you. This has been a complete delight. And thank you so much for doing this podcast and for asking me on. Thank you. Elizabeth, hello. Hello, Cressida. (laughs) How are you? I'm okay, thank you. I feel very lucky to be in the position that I'm in, to be honest, where I can work from home. I have a lovely home that I share with a lovely partner. And whilst I know people who have COVID-19, I feel extremely grateful that as yet, it's been okay from my individual perspective. And I'm just very, very aware of how tough it is for lots of other people and for people who are ill and for our incredible NHS workers and all those people who are still out there working. So yeah, I'm fine, thank you, because I know how much worse it could be. Yeah. And and obviously when we recorded this, we didn't know that people would be now in isolation in their homes. And I think the themes that we discussed you know about alienation and this fear of being alienated and the need to connect to others is really significant now and has the current situation changed your perspective at all on on your fear of alienation that's such an interesting question because on one level it has in the sense that I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that I have this newfound appreciation of things I took for granted and of little things like walking outside and feeling the wind on your face or the ability to give an actual hug to a dear friend or go to the cinema. So I do have a newfound appreciation for all of those things and noticing those things has made me feel less alone. Mm. And I actually feel very, very connected to my community and to my friendship group and to my family because one of the unexpected benefits of this particular period of isolation, physically speaking, is that I have so much more time to call and FaceTime people. And I'm so grateful that we live in an era that enables us to do that. So in one respect, it's allayed my fears, but I'm also very aware that I speak from a position of privilege in that I do have a long-term relationship. And so my other half is working upstairs as I'm doing this podcast and I have a cat and therefore (laughs) I don't feel alone. So my heart really does go out to people who are single, who are living on their own or the elderly, because that's still, I know how that feels. I know how it feels to be single in a tiny flat with no outside space. And that still worries me, to be honest. Um, But I think that it has showed me the power of community. Mm. I mean, I've spoken to my neighbours more in the last week than I have in the few months of living here. And that is a really beautiful thing that actually in times of crisis, we are a community species and we do come together. Mm. And also you mentioned in the episode that you were were scared of becoming elderly and losing connection to others. And as a positive, I feel like, as you just said, that we are seeing more support with the elderly than usual. And I feel like there are more sort of support groups and we can um, volunteer and there's more things going around that we can do that perhaps we we didn't see before. And we are um, starting to connect more in a sort of very strange way, even though we are also at the same time very disconnected. Definitely. And I actually think, um, you know, things like social media, which comes in for a lot of flack, rightly so, 
But again, I'm so aware of the benefits of it right now. The ability to communicate with people through social media platforms and to tell people that you're safe and so on and so forth is it can be a very beautiful thing. Mm. And absolutely, I do think that there's just this sudden splurge of initiatives, volunteering initiatives that I find very, very heartening. I mean, I was on a local website called Nextdoor, which has been providing volunteering services for people who are too ill to get their own groceries and things like that. And the reason I was on it originally was because I was looking for a cat sitter. And this <laughs> um, forum has now become just a really beautiful space where there's this like outpouring of community cohesion. So that has been really, really lovely to witness. Yeah. And I listened to um, the new episode on how to fail with Mo Gaudat. And I know we did mention your the previous episode that you um, you did before, but there's a new one about the anxiety around coronavirus. If anyone's listening to this, please, please listen to it because it's just fantastic and so unbelievably helpful, I think, to to everyone and anyone. Thank you. And he was saying, you know, that we do have to just look at the positives and to embrace what we do have. I'm so touched that you said that. And I, I just felt very strongly that the person I wanted to hear from was Mo, who I interviewed in season four last year. And just to revisit his extraordinary stores of wisdom was a very calming exercise for me too. And one of the things that he talks about is the space within this time to nurture something that he calls committed acceptance. So it's acceptance of the time that we find ourselves in and the challenge that we're facing but it's committed in the sense that we commit to doing some sort of action to help. And that might be an action to preserve our mental health any given day, or it might be a community action to help a neighbour. And so it's all about perceiving the things that you do have control over rather than things that you don't. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you for making the time to just do this 10 minute chat, which I just think is just a lovely add on to your brilliant episode oh you're so lovely Cressida and thank you for what you're doing I just can't think of a timelier time for fear itself to launch so thank you so so much for having me back on and you keep well and safe you too thank you for listening to fear itself if you enjoyed this episode it would be hugely appreciated if you could subscribe on your favorite podcast app and maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it You can also find me on Instagram at Cressida Bonus. I'd like to give a special thanks to the producer and editor Hannah Varrell, James and Kazra at One Fine Play for their fantastic studio space, and Malt Martin for his beautiful music. Tune in next week when I will be chatting to another great guest about all things fear. Thanks guys, and see you next week.